Hello and welcome to Cinephil's podcast. This is take 13. Uh, appropriate number for the John Carpenter film um, In the Mouth of Madness. Uh, good to talk to you again, Rob. Uh, I hope you uh, enjoyed the film and I'm looking forward to your thoughts. Um, since I proposed it uh, as, a, as a tribute to Sam Neill, who is a uh, who um, is um, has recently been diagnosed with cancer, and uh, he was in our last film until the end of the world. Um, I thought we would uh, talk about this film that came out on my twenty sixth birthday. Oh wow! Okay, I didn't know that uh, there was that additional connection. Uh, yeah, uh, I quite enjoyed it. Uh, it wasn't. Uh, wasn't the most amazing movie that I've ever seen, but it was worthwhile. And I thought there were a lot of really, really interesting parts to it. And uh, as a rule, I just, uh, I really like Lovecraftian horror if it's done well. Uh, so yeah, I, and this movie has all this, well, a lot of references to Lovecraft. Um, so I, I enjoyed it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's not even the best John Carpenter film. Um, but, you know, there's so few uh, Lovecraftian films that carry it off well and that are, you know, decent tributes to the, the genre. I am a, I have to say, I'm a Lovecraft aficionado. Um, I, I read his, um, I think, pretty much all of his short stories uh, at this point. And uh, any, any Lovecraft-themed uh, comic or movie i'm liable to digest quickly oh really i did not know that uh well i'm not nearly as familiar with lovecraft as you are uh so this will be educational for me as well um yeah like the only well i am familiar with a few explicitly lovecraftian movies and uh I I didn't really enjoy them. I didn't think, <laughs> okay. you know, I didn't think they were done uh, very well. I thought uh, there was that, sh that TV show, uh, I guess it was last year, Lovecraft Country on, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. HBO. Uh, yeah, that was all right. Uh, I thought at the end it went a bit over. Uh, it it exceeded the, pl the plot buildup uh, that was on uh but i enjoyed it for what it was uh so uh well why don't you uh give us a bit of background to uh like i say this is lovecraftian because uh there was like the a few references to to the the big monster the cool yeah, yeah what, what, how, well yeah to the the ancient ones so in the lovecraft's so lovecraft's um mythos is one built on the notion of some uh, deep in time, distant past in which creatures that were essentially like gods to us, because they were so vast in their their power and even huge and in actual size, somehow dominated um, our planet and and were were pretty much you know um they were not they were intelligent they, they weren't just dinosaurs these were intelligent creatures and they're often called the elder gods or the ancient ones there are different levels of these of these gods they're not i mean they, they are gods in the sense that they are hugely powerful um but they're not um they are not uh 
uh, deities in the typical sense. So Lovecraft's, you know, there's a lot of things to criticize about Lovecraft. One is that he was a terrible xenophobe and racist, uh, and that that works its way into a fair amount of his fiction. Um, but he has this interesting view, uh, uh, one that you can tell he's terrified of, of like the depths of something or the deepest, darkest aspect of something like, uh, you know, uh, underground or, you know, sub the subterranean or in Antarctica or under the ocean, all of these places are teeming with these, uh, potential horrible creatures that can be, that basically view humanity as specks of dust. So, so this mythos, I think, and, and Carpenter and, um, and a couple other filmmakers actually have been, um, influenced by this, this idea, these ideas famously, um, part of the xenomorph, um, uh, um, evolution comes from a, a Lovecraftian background, which is another story we can talk about at another time. Uh, maybe we'll get into the alien films at some point. Yeah, that, that would be, that would be fun. I'm always up for uh, alien movies. Well, the first few were really good and then it sort of, then it became hit and miss there for a while. But uh, yeah, those uh, first ones were excellent. Um, to me, like it was just the, the tentacles. As soon as I see like monstrous tentacles, I'm like, yeah, okay, this is Lovecraftian. Like, it's either Lovecraft or hentai, and in this case, it's yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it wasn't hentai, so it's Lovecraft. Okay, wow. <laughs> yes, uh, I thought that was uh, yeah. So like in my mind, it's like okay, tentacles that are not hentai, it's Lovecraftian. Okay. Um, and I did think one thing I liked about this movie is um, apparently Lovecraft Country, because this is like Lovecraft Country, is uh, uh, in Markham, Ontario. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, he and yeah, and like, this was filmed in, in Toronto. Yeah. Toronto and Markham, which is just yeah. outside of uh, Toronto. Uh, and uh, that was uh, quite shocking to me. And the when I looked it up, well, the tip off was. Uh, when they went to Hobbs End in the, in the middle of this town, uh, that they described it as a uh, quintessential American town. <laughs> and as soon as I hear that in uh, any TV show or a movie, like, oh, Main Street America or anything like that, I'm like, bet you 10 bucks that was shot in Canada. And, exactly. and most of the time it is uh uh like there's uh like the west wing all of that was shot out, outside of uh uh like all of the middle america segments from the west wing were shot uh near hamilton uh in a suburb of hamilton and this one uh, i looked it up and it was uh shot basically university of toronto and markham ontario uh yeah was basically it uh that that opening shot of the mental the insane asylum um that's the water treatment plant at markham <laughs> just just fun you know that exterior that's yeah, uh, yeah so i thought that was neat uh, so yeah but anyway um yeah i don't want to get ahead like 
we always do or like i always <laughs> see it always seem i think i'm the one who spoils it uh so let's not do that today uh let's go, uh beginning middle and end uh like let's walk walk our uh, audience uh through the plot here uh um yeah and um since it came out on your birth on your 26th birthday um why don't you tell us the basic walk us through the basic plot of this uh and what stood up yeah so um sam neil of course plays the um and and he has a film that's made for he has a face that's made for horror films if you ask me something about the arch of his eyebrow uh his ability to look wild-eyed when necessary or quizzical he has a great face and he really um so if i was you know we've seen him in I, he was in event horizon uh which else was lovecraftian horror um and um you know omen three i think was an early film of his yes he was in that as well as the antichrist uh a growing yeah. up damien uh yeah that was a great show. Well, a great one. Yeah. And, and he really, you know, he does has have this face made for horror films, but he also can play the mild mannered, you know, um, person as he did in, in, um, until the end of the world, he's this insurance adjuster basically who's, who investigates fraud claims. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's brought in by the publisher and then a great, you know, B movie, um, uh, horror uh, apocalyptic uh, actor uh, Charlton Heston, of course, plays the the head of the publishing company, um, which I thought was a a great casting choice as well. Yes, yeah, uh, was one of uh, Charlton Heston's better roles, if you ask me. Uh, yeah, because yeah, um, he's not he's not doing you know he's not doing the Shatner on it. He's um, playing it understated, and he does it well. Yes. So the so um, this mild manner insurance adjuster is supposed to track down the missing author and manuscript that uh, is due to be published shortly. The and the manuscript, of course, is in the mouth of mag madness, and it's being written by the mysterious and reclusive Sutter Kane, mm -hmm. um, which is a, um, a apparently an homage to Stephen King and Carpenter had. <laughs> Yeah, Carpenter had done a film of the Stephen King novel. Which which did, one did he do? Christine. Christine. Oh yes, yeah. So um, so you know, I think Carpenter, and you know, Stephen King is famously unhappy with most of the adaptations of of his of his books. I bet there was some. Oh, don't um, even get me started on that. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, like. Uh, Part of my dissertation, I take a few swipes at King uh, for saying that uh, his version of The Shining is better than Kubrick's, which is... Oh, that, that's insane. That's yeah, just like nuts. Objectively wrong. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, like, uh, right, yeah, so, uh, yes, and uh, King, well, there is that line in the, in the movie, The Most of Madness, about, yes, he outsells Stephen King, uh, Sutter Kane. Right. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, well... So I'm guessing, I mean, John Carpenter's taking some swipes at, at King uh, in this character. And, and, and probably well-deserved if he probably, I'm sure he dealt with him somehow when he was doing Christine and it wasn't a pleasant experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then like there's a, so then they, it opens in the asylum. 
uh, which is essentially apocalypse has already happened, but we don't know what apocalypse is yet. Right. We just know it's getting bad out there. Yeah, it's getting bad. Yeah, it's it's the beginning of apocalypse. And then basically um, Sam Neill's character is locked into a, uh, a cell, uh, a room in the asylum. And uh, the rest of the movie is essentially a flashback, Sam Neill's flashback of what led him to this moment. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. yeah, he's telling it to, um, is it a cop? Yes, yeah, I believe it is, yeah. Okay. He's telling yeah. it to a cop um, because, you know, he, he, and we'll find out why later. Um, yeah. But yeah, so now, and then there's a there's a, a hang around, right? So somebody's sent with him to find this town. And now this is a device that was used again in, in numerous Lovecraft stories and in the, in the TV show um, Lovecraft Lovecraft country of a town that's not on the map, but that exists. Right. And you have to, you have to kind of pass through some magical transformation to get there. Yes. And this magical transformation was basically a covered bridge in New Hampshire. Yes. Uh, Yeah. Which was, Hey, th- if there is such a thing as a Einstein Rosenberg bridge on the planet Earth, why not have it as a covered bridge in Manhattan or in uh, New Hampshire? Uh, let's see. Yeah, it actually that part of the movie, I was like, yeah, OK, well, this this works uh, like I'm assuming uh, that they were operating. Well, because they were filming in Canada, uh, I assume that they were operating on a lower budget. And I thought that the covered bridge wormhole thing or uh, well yeah to another plane of reality uh, was interesting I thought it worked well and uh, then when they okay well before but before we get to the town did uh, he meet up with the agent beforehand yes yeah 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 which I thought was a great moment uh yeah, yeah. So the this actual. is the agent who uh, his eyes are deformed, right? Yeah, <laughs> which was just yeah. Well, he was really he's going uh, he's going nuts on the street. Yes, uh, he's an axe murderer, literally. Uh, which right, is, he's dragging an axe around. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and then that guy that guy gets killed, and then he finds out that was the agent. He didn't know that at the right. time. Yeah, and I thought, I thought that scene like as it was good horror, but it was also played for laughs. Like you know, because uh, there Sam Neill's character is sitting there talking to the cop, and it was the cop, I think, at this point. Well, talking to somebody, and this this axe wielding maniac is coming across. You see him crossing the street, getting uh, there's a traffic jam. Right. He uh, walks onto the sidewalk. Everybody freaks out. He walks over uh, a balcony, and everybody on the balcony freaks out of the restaurant. And Sam Neill's just talking away, you know, yeah. big going on. And the cameras is showing all of this action in the background until finally, <laughs> uh, 
the axe mur the the agent uh, the agent now axe murderer smashes the axe through the plate glass window and oh an amazingly oblivious Sam Neill suddenly yeah. takes notice. <laughs> it is it is played for laughs, yeah, and it's funny and and Sam Neill um manages to yeah. I mean play that well for laughs by being you know, animated and interested in whatever it is he's talking about, you know, so, and, and totally oblivious. Yeah. So, and, and, and John Carpenter does this well, I think he makes his horror with laughs and that's one of his sort of trademark um, moves. We should mention that uh, this is one of three films um, in a series that he, he conceived. I did not know this. What are the other two movies were they ever made? They were, yeah. So actually, um, the series he refers to as his Apocalypse series. The first one was The Thing. Oh, okay. Yes. The second one was The Prince of Darkness, and this was the final final um, of the, this trilogy. Oh, yeah. And, and there are themes that I think all of these share. Um, you know, the, the Thing has, again, this, this Lovecraftian notion of some super not supernatural but otherworldly horror yes uh and there's well it's not so much in uh the thing uh insanity but that is certainly a theme in uh prince of darkness which is uh in my mind a really underrated movie uh yeah, I agree. You know, which is basically the Antichrist is uh, green goo that is held up in a Baptist church and uh, emanates evil. Uh, it's antimatter, though, too, right? Yes, yes, yeah. It's like <laughs> it's not like it's not a it's not a demon in a bottle. It is uh, yes, it's something completely otherworldly that they assign uh, some sort of. Uh, judeo-christian uh spirituality too uh that's right. as, as the demon and it gets and alice cooper's in that as uh yep. the leader of the vagrant army of zombies um yeah and there's a lot and as it's been forever since i saw that movie but again you have the people in the who are studying this antimatter uh basically going insane or getting killed off so there is that notion of insanity which is mm -hmm. gathering a part of a, a lovecraftian theme uh, that's right yeah and the insanity is brought by brought about by their exposure to something natural but it, it's so it's not the, these films don't embrace the existence of the supernatural, but rather something of the sort of extra natural. It's it's like it's part of nature that's so incomprehensible, so beyond our and this is the this is, you know, the Lovecraftian influence, really. There are parts of nature that are so in incomprehensible to us puny humans uh that they drive us mad uh when we are in contact with them uh-huh okay yeah well that's yeah that's uh entirely in keeping with uh 
a lot like that's like the notion of the sacred uh in numerous religions uh very well might drive you mad if you ever encounter it right even the, even the face of god or the name yeah. of god right yeah that's right. yeah and like um i'm thinking here of like uh Iliade again and like the Hieronophies which are basically sacred objects and Iliade's description of a sacred object is anything that is stands apart from its circumstance and the, or from its setting and the degree it stands apart could be very small it could be the orange book on your bookcase of black books or it could be something that is utterly on your comprehension um like and it's and it really that whole gamut is covered off in the hieronophy in iliade so yeah that that's i that's a cool notion and the and even um Simon Don talks about this quite a bit in uh, one of his books uh, where he's like, oh, yeah, like the magical places of the earth. And this is Simon Don. They do exist. Uh, they're real. And what happens there? Stuff that is natural, but utterly beyond your comprehension. Right. Uh, you know, like weird transformations occur. And um, yeah, so that's interesting. That's uh it's cool. That there's a there's a great um, connection now with that, and a really important thing that you know most Lovecraft scholars love to talk about, and that is that there is a device in his fiction, a book that keeps coming up in his stories, called the Necronomicon. The Necronomicon is allegedly a magical book that shows up in several of his stories or refers to it. It's also called the book of the dead. And it supposedly has an Arabic title of Kitab al Azif and it's magical. Um, and you know, it is one of those books that, you know, people, the, the authors referred to as this mad Arab, um, Abdul, uh, Hazred. Um, and, people quote from it and they talk about this book throughout various Lovecraft stories. And it's not a real book. Of course, this is entirely fictional. Oh, you're not going. I thought it was, I thought it, I thought this was a manuscript you've been working on for so long. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. That's, that would explain a lot about my demeanor, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> just filled in the blanks here. Uh, <laughs> uh, so um, that, that book in his, in his fiction, um, even though it never existed, it became the center of a whole other mythos. So um, he encouraged other authors to treat it as though it really existed. And it shows up in a bunch of other fiction now under the same description. Um, so he, Lovecraft conjures the existence of this fictional book into um, a, a sort of, um, urban myth uh, that now <laughs> a lot of people think is real um, and people um, you know and and there's a lot of crossover in talking about its existence and other books that actually allegedly do exist um, in, um, including um, 
know, books written apparently by famous, um, the John D. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He was a, um, a cultist in, in Elizabethan England. Anyway, so what's interesting about that and the tie-in and the reason I've, I've, I've prattled on and on about it is because that is the, that is similar to the nature of this book, the, the, in the mouth of madness in the movie. It's just this, you know, this sort of magical book that offers, um, an, a vision of something that we're not supposed to know, we're not supposed to see, um, and that drives people mad. That is so cool. Uh, and, and as as you were elaborating on that, I couldn't help but think of uh, this is like some Borges level stuff going on here. Uh, you know, like because like Borges, like all his stories are like uh, the lost manuscript or the incomprehensible manuscript, uh, like his his whole basically his entire st- short story collection of uh, labyrinths or yeah i think it's labyrinths is about that um you know and uh you got this idea again of this this neat well nigh incomprehensible text which everybody in the universe uh borges universe refers to as existing uh, um and as the reader of Bor of or his fiction, you're you're supposed to think that, well, yeah, like this exists just the same way Plato's Republic exists, um, you know, and then like the textbook, it's taught in some university class somewhere, of course. Uh, but of course, this text has never these texts have never been written. Uh, there is no physical instantiation of the literary work of art and. That's just cool. That's a that's a wonderful concept. Like there's there's like because, well, does it exist? You know, there is that there is that metaphysical question. You know, like okay, well, if if everybody's talking about it as it exists and everybody's elaborating on the properties of it, um, then for some metaphysics, for some aspects of metaphysics, yes, it has a, it has reality. Uh, yeah, it does. And yeah. and it is conjured, as I said, I use that term pretty um, deliberately yeah. uh, is conjured by the word. Yeah. So, and this is the this is the underlying theme of of the movie itself um, and of much of the Lovecraft mythos and as well. Um, but here we find out when we're in this town of Hobbs End um, that that this is this is being created. It's being crafted by by Sutter Kane. Yes, uh the place didn't exist didn't exist prior to Sutter Kane is what we have to um uh is the basic claim here. And then uh and the Sam Neill's uh partner uh sent by the publisher was entirely crafted by Sutter Kane, we find out. Uh later. Right. Uh, she never existed exterior to Sutter Kane's work. Right. Uh, yeah. And I thought that was, yeah. So we're basically going into a pocket dimension here. Uh, that's what Hobbs end is a pocket dimension, which contains the book, which created the pocket dimension. That's right. Okay. Um, that, okay like, uh, that's, that's like, that's awesome. That like right there, 
I love that concept. Uh, um, this is like people dismiss it as uh, a B horror movie shot in shot in the wilds of Ontario, <laughs> and <laughs> and it is like there's some really heavy duty conceptual stuff going on there that uh, needs that. I'm so glad you brought you brought to attention, and in and I in Hobbs End. Oh, you also have this notion of a weird time loop going on right when they get on their way to Hobbs End immediately before the quantum tunneling. Right. Uh, where With that bicyclist, right? Bicyclist, right? The bicyclist has a young boy who is now the really old man. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I thought that was uh, coming from the opposite direction. Uh, yeah, I thought that was a uh, really cool sort of uh, temporal recursion and uh that's that's personally a concept i'm all i love you know this notion of okay time is not temporal succession but uh uh, just a recursion or a repetition of uh difference and i thought a variation and i thought that was that was really fun like it it's like a nietzschean delusian bergsonian time going on there in just that little sequence and it was like this little gift that I was like, wow, okay, this movie is this not only does it have axe murderers, it has super concept, super cool concepts of time going on, uh, and pocket dimensions created by entities within the pocket dimension. And I thought that like there's there's so much here. That's just great. Uh, Carpenter's not afraid to um to play. Um and he does it, I think, quite effectively with these little devices. So it's a low budget film. It only cost a few million dollars to make, of course. Uh, and this is one of the things, you know, Carpenter has also done successfully. He's been able to make these low budget films um, and maintain control over them so that, you know, the, the result is exactly what he wants. Um, he doesn't have to deal with, um, you know, the, the demands of writers like Stephen King or, or, or uh, big production uh, companies. Uh, but yeah, that that so I took that to be, you know, that as we get closer to this other dimension, you know, Einsteinian space is curved around it in some way that, you know, weird things temporally, spatially start happening. Same thing happens when he tries to escape. Yeah, like it's it's like it's a Taurus, like this notion of time looping back on itself. It's like the the bagel from everything, everywhere, all at once, yeah. uh, just circling around itself. And yeah, I thought that was a. Super cool. Um, then they get in this small town at Hobbs End, um, which uh, I thought was hilarious because it was uh, named after uh, what's what are those uh, B B British movies? The Hammer Horrors. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, jeez, I, I don't recall. Quartermain, Quartermain, and the Quartermain, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Quartermain in the pit. One the subway station where they find the alien artifact or the elder guard god artifact. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a Hobbs End station. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I Turn thought. Okay. Yeah, and I thought that was super cool. You know, it's that's like that's a nice uh, homage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, one, the, the paper boy was played by Hayden Christensen. Oh wow! That, that's cool. <laughs> it's a, maybe one of his better roles. 
Yeah. 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 I'd say so. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. And, um, and in Hobbs End, I, uh, that hotel, right? Yeah. So we should be having visions of, again, Stephen King and The Shining, this sort of um, uh, throwback to another era. And of course, the, the lady working there is Frances Bay, who is, uh, I think she was, she was in the, the David Lynch, um, was it the TV show? Yeah, she looked really familiar to me. I didn't bother, uh, I didn't get a chance to follow up on that. Uh, it's in Twin Peaks, I think. Yeah, but it, yes, isn't she Log Lady? She might yeah. be lady. Francis Bay is log lady. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah. That. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. And now she's carrying around some guy. Yeah. Her husband shaped her ankle. It's a great, great, hilarious scene. Oh, and just because. Oh, there's so there's so much there. Like uh, because like the there's a slang for. The wife has the old ball and chain, uh, right? Uh, yeah. And here is the wife dragging around the husband on her ankle, who she's basically in the process of murdering. <laughs> and he's the ball and chain. And I'm like, wow, that's a nice little uh, subversion of the patriarchy right there. Uh, I thought that was really, really fun. Uh, I thought that was a. Uh, yeah, that was a I great- laughed out loud uh, because this, you know, Frances Bay plays this sweet old lady so well. And of course, she's involved in some sort of um, sadomasochistic murder, which is yeah, you know, very Lynchian, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was hilarious. Uh, and that that hotel was, uh, yes, I did get some strong Stephen King vibes off of it. Um, how Stephen King wanted the Overlook Hotel to be in um, the actual novel, The Shining. Uh, okay. Which, which I got to say is really a, not a good novel. Uh, well, I'm not a fan of his um, writing, actually. I, yeah. I do love uh, The Shining, which is, a, yeah. but it, it's not because of the writing. Yeah, and uh, the actual, like, Kubrick's, one of the bones of contention about, uh, between King and Kubrick with respect to The Shining was uh, Kubrick shot The Shining. Uh, The exteriors of The Shining were of the Hood Mountain Lodge in Mount Hood, Oregon. uh, A place, like, a couple hours out of, or a couple hours out of Portland, maybe, uh, called the government camp. And it's basically halfway up, uh, Mount hood and, uh, from the top of the mountain to the hood mountain lodge, which is the overlook hotel in the movie is a glacier. And, uh, it's great for like, or it used to be like, we're talking 20 years ago, maybe the glacier's gone now. Um, but at one point it was good for skiing. Um, but the interior of the the Overlook Hotel was all soundstage uh, stuff. Okay. Uh, Pinewood Studios, probably, uh, yeah. with Rick uh, and King had serious objections to it because, if you recall, The Shining, it was it was the Overlook Hotel. The interiors were wide; they were expansive; they were a labyrinth in the hallways. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. the, architecture uh was massive 
Um, whereas the Shining Hotel in the King novel was basically a hotel. It was based on a hotel in Maine and it was like this small mom and pop uh, hotel, not at all like uh, Psycho, but like a palatial house, but still yeah. a house, uh, which is much more what this uh, hotel in Hobbs End is. It's like a very, very nice house. Uh, yeah, and it's, these are these are the sorts of hotels you tend to to run in in, in these small communities in New England. Um, and, it, you know, makes more sense. But it's no, I think Kubrick's vision couldn't have been realized in, in such a in such a place. No, no, uh, no way. Uh, yeah. And the, the other contention that uh, that King had with Kubrick was basically that uh, Kubrick made the movie a lot more smart, a lot smarter than the book. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, like, uh, but anyway, back to back to In the Mouth of Madness. So this was yes. no. so they, they go to this church scene. Right. And the church has become. Yes. Perverted into some demonic place. And there the boy comes to the the door. Yes. Yeah. And and that's a scene right out of Carrie or something. Um yeah. with the, the wind blowing from you know his hair in the wind and he's projecting this sort of demonic presence. I got strong omen vibes from that. Yep. Moment too. Yeah. Yeah. Like with uh, the little, the Damien as a child, the hair blowing when the nanny hangs herself or whatever. I was just like, yeah, yeah, that's a, yeah. That kid's kid's evil. He's in a bad place. This is, this is not going to end well. And then, and then immediately, shortly thereafter that, they're immediately after that, or as part of that scene, release the hounds that's <laughs> right and i was like oh my the hounds like, of hell. those are the yeah. hounds of hell yeah and they were dobermans and then that made me think about uh the simpsons with mr burns and all yeah. the dobermans and i was like i wonder if this is where it came from and i thought it was just delightful uh <laughs> So actually, you know, Simpsons have been around for a while, so it's, it may have been a, an homage to that, in fact. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it might have been. Yeah, that's true. They have been around. I've been around for a long time, too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, that's, that's depressing. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> so, um, and and now now we finally meet Sutter Kane, who appears in 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 where the boy had been. I don't know what happened to that boy after that. Um, but now we see Sutter Kane. Um, he doesn't look like a writer. I mean, he's a, he, he's a rather um, imposing figure. Yeah. He's like the GQ cover model version of a writer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, I'm, yeah. I, no, I, I wasn't getting uh scholarly vibes coming from him. <laughs> I was getting uh something else. Yeah, rock star vibes. Yeah, yeah. He's got the rock star thing going on with the hair and everything and doesn't yeah. even wear glasses. I mean, what kind of writer doesn't have glasses? A hack. A hack. <laughs> I mean even yeah. even uh uh um well anyway. So yeah. um n- now we're led into the back of the church where all sorts of weird things are happening. Right. 
Yeah, hell of an office that Sutter Kane has to write his manuscript in. Like, the walls are basically bleeding, uh, or they're pulsating. Uh, well, there's a doorway that uh, <laughs> I'd say God only knows what is behind that doorway, but perhaps God doesn't even know. Uh, that's unearthly. So this this is the same theme. This is the theme of the writer. Like he's building this, all of this is built by his words. So he again has constructed reality itself um, through the mechanical typewriter and through the, the, the conjuring uh, of words, um, of things into existence through strings of words. Yes. And uh, so what was behind that door was like, the poorly the poorly formed proto concepts of whatever would come onto the page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a fair assessment. Yeah. Well, so really, he was just doing a dissertation. That's right. <laughs> this was like the fifth revision of uh, his dissertation, and he just finally lost his shit and decided to hold up in a church, hold up in a church, and. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the only thing that kept reality uh, together, right, was that nobody read mine. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> the abstract, though. People have said that that's a good abstract. But... Yeah, it, it drives them a little mad, just not fully. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. And um, so the hotel, um, when, do, okay, so it goes hotel church and then back to hotel and here's when the wheels really start fly coming off right yeah like this is like uh the sam neil's uh uh companion uh reveals herself to be a servant to uh the Sutter Kane, uh, and also a creation of Sutter Kane. Uh, mm-hmm. Does she get destroyed by demons at this point, or no? Or she no? becomes a demon. Yeah, I she, mean, she at this point yeah. she's starting to physically transform yeah. into yes. weird things. Weird things. There's all the tentacles from under the door uh, going on there. Uh, the the sweet old lady who runs the hotel uh, reveals herself to be another demon or elder god. Right. And uh, yeah, there's all, yes, lots of weirdness. Uh, and, and so Sam, uh, Sam Neil um, now is, he's going to have to flee. He's going to get out of this place, right? But weirdly, he's still trying to save this woman. Um, what's her name? Um, who is it was quite clearly all you know altered at this point right yeah uh what is her name i'm just uh i should have i should have known this uh okay uh linda's uh julia yeah uh yeah uh, the character's name is linda yes yes uh right and uh, yes she is transforming uh she doesn't have the eyes in her head in the right place uh, That's right. yes um 
and he gets into the car and drives away and keeps coming back to uh, the town where everybody's gathering. That's right. Um, and, and, and he ends up in another one of these loops. Yes. He can't get out by the, by this time. Kane has given him the manuscript. Yes. And you're going to deliver this. Oh no, no. First he tries to escape, but he can't. Then he goes to see Kane. Yes. And then Kane says, you're going to have to deliver this manuscript. Right. And That's right. So, so when he realizes he can't escape the town, he ends up in this loop. He keeps ending up back where he started from again. Space and time are twisted around this town in a, in a non, you know, uh, in an impossible way. Um, so he has to get Sutter Kane to release him. And, and the, the, the net effect is that Kane says, you're going to have to take my manuscript. I finish it. Right. And then cut forward to uh, basically, well, the future months later, apparently um, where uh, Sam Neill's character, John Trent uh, right. is uh, he talks to the publisher again, because he's like, it seems that the world is slowly becoming unglued uh, lived experiences messed up. Yeah. And um, the publisher is like, dude, what are you doing here? We, you gave me the manuscript like six months ago. We've now optioned it to a movie. And got in, in seven weeks, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, and uh, yeah. And Sam Neill's like, or John Trent is like, well, this can't be released. And he starts to lose his mind. Yeah. And then we end up. Uh, and do some very hostile things to people lining up at bookstores to buy the book. And it was, yeah, that, that must have been uh, like, there's, there's perhaps the greatest fiction of this people lining up at bookstores to buy books. Um, well, there was a time, I mean, I remember Harry Potter madness uh, many years ago. Um, people lined up for those. But yeah, yeah, that that was definitely <laughs> a, a little little bit of uh, anachronism. Um, but uh, so th this is um, there's also some social commentary here. So, and I think Carpenter is making this very clearly. Um, I recall hysteria about um, um, like satanic stuff in the '80s. That was a big thing, and. D and D is a portal to Satanism and, you know, heavy metal music and all of these various different things that um, kids liked were going to corrupt you. They were going to turn you into evil Satan worshipers. And, you know, that, uh, that hysteria is I think part of what, um, what John Carpenter's commenting on, but it actually happens in his story. Yeah, but like, and like, like that was like the eighties, uh, late seventies, like with, well, with with the son of Sam Killer. Uh, who, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I remember with um, Ozzy Osbourne and and D and D were the big were the big no nos, right? Right. You, you, you wear a heavy metal shirt, and well, you might eat babies or something, right? Like, or, exactly. 
you know, and it's like, oh, just because it says Black Sabbath on your shirt doesn't make you a bad person. Um, right. You know, yeah. And that was, uh, yeah, that was uh, certainly uh, a, a hysteria that was going on in early parts of, in the, in the years of, uh, the early years of uh, the Ronald Reagan's America. Right. Uh, the, which was like the early 1980s. Yeah. So there was that, that vibe for sure. And, and Carpenter movies were a target of some of that. I know. I, I remember Prince of Darkness being one of those that people were like, oh, these are demonic films. And, you know, we should be, we shouldn't see him. Protesters were gathering, et cetera. Yeah. The Jerry Falwells of the world were uh, up in arms about this. Uh, yeah. And it was, uh, yeah, that, that's a uh, very astute. I didn't, uh, you saying this makes me real. Yes, that is true. I, I didn't catch that though in the initial viewing. So well done. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. Um, yeah, it brings back a lot of memories and, and Carpenter, um, is an interesting character from a, um, from a, a social commentary perspective. He's always got social commentary in his films. I I'm thinking of they live right where again, somebody has a vision into the real world, into what the real world's like. Um, and it's, you know, it, there is this darkness, there is this horrific thing going on that, you know, has the potential to drive people mad. Um, and he has to be, he's the only, it was Rowdy, 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 Rowdy Piper. Same yes. Day the day, because he was all out of bubble gum. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was a great John Carpenter at his at his finest, I think, making these um pithy comments about our society through comedy and horror. Yeah. And uh I think it's it's done wonderfully uh in this movie. Um I think it that it's well executed. Uh it's the horror is over the top. Yeah. But uh, it's designed to be over the top. Uh, and also, like, you know, some that is uh, really on the nose, like uh, the cop beating the random vagrant in the alleyway. Uh, exactly. Right. You know, I it's, mean, that is, it's that like, is a monster from the real world. Right. And it's like, you know, like everything from the. The David Bowie song "Life on Mars" to uh, Rodney King to today, you know, mm-hmm. like this this is a that was a really potent image when I saw that. I was like, okay, yes, that is. Uh, pay attention now, Rob. You know, like this is this is a thing, um, and I thought um, an interesting a little moment uh, was. Th- when he first sees the cop beating the guy in the alleyway, we're talking early on in the movie. Uh, He, before Hobbs end, before things go off the rails, he pulls, he starts to play with a poster uh, of uh, the new Sutter Kane book. He starts to pull at it a bit, but leaves it alone because he's distracted by the cop beating the vagrant. and to me, when I saw that, I thought of Herman Hess. And I thought of Four Mad Men only uh, from Steppenwolf. Uh, okay. When, like, 
Harry Holler in uh, Hess's novel, basically, uh, he enters into the magical theater by pulling on a poster that only he can see in an alleyway to get in to get into the magical theater, which is this surreal place um, that, again, it might be a pocket. It might be a pocket dimension. Uh mm-hmm. In uh, in a, in a, in a bat, in a science fiction writer's hands, it would have, the magical theater in them in this in uh, Steppenwolf would have been a pocket dimension. Uh, yeah. and I thought this was a real moment uh, where I just was like, oh, okay, so there's now a reference to Nobel Prize winning literature here, you know, and it's like really interesting. Uh, it was much. And like little grace notes like that really elevated this movie for me. Um, it's like, this is not your chop and schlock B horror movie. This isn't uh Jason Voorhees uh, sort of scenario. There's like some real fun literary references going on. There's some real fun cinematic references going on. And there's some real fun metaphysical references going on uh, in this movie, uh, which I thought was, and social commentary, as you pointed out. I, so I think it was uh, wonderful uh, to see. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those B movies that is enjoyable. Um, to watch it wasn't too long, which which helps. Um, it gets us um, in about an hour and a half to to where it's going, and and it does it I think succinctly. There's nothing that I thought could be excised. Um, I was also reminded of the Ray Bradbury of Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury has um, a couple of novels in which these pocket dimensions open up, and um, one is Something Wicked This Way Comes. I don't know if you know that one. I have no Bradbury, but I don't know that one. No. Okay. It's a, it's a kid and he ends up in this sort of magical sort of like, um, alternate, um, universe. That's really just a carnival. Um, and this carnival is, uh, dark and mysterious and offers, uh, um, visions of a world that, you know, is, are slightly forbidden of, of things that, you know, you shouldn't know. So these, this is a theme, um, and I think uh, Carpenter's uh, Carpenter carries it off, and and Sam Neill uh, carries the day and just really shines, I think, in the role. Oh yeah, Sam Neill sold this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, a different actor uh, wouldn't have uh, made uh, John Trent uh, as believable. Um, if, Rowdy Roddy Piper's awesome. Uh, don't get me wrong, but I don't think he could have done it on Trent. Uh, he was great in They Live, I have to say. He was. He That's was. A classic. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, Sam Neill um, saves. And so we should talk about that final scene because it's, again, a sort of meta uh, scene. So Sam Neill emerges from the, the asylum and the whole world's gone to hell, literally, overrun with the elder gods and ancient ones and what does he do what does he do i forget how much to the movies yeah yes that's right yeah you know which he goes is- to the movies gets himself popcorn and sits down and watches the movie of in the mouth of madness right where, where it's like the movie of his life 
<laughs> which is great. You know, that, that's so it's fun. wonderful. It's a, it's again, this sort of recursive time loop. Yeah. And now the film that he's watching is, is part of that loop. Yes. Right. Uh, yeah. So it's this, it's a manifest destiny, self-fulfilling prophecy, uh, a circle of time that uh, has within it eddies, which are non-lit, uh, a circular flow of time, which uh, has within it moments that themselves don't have succession going on at uh, which um, like this again, like the calling back to Borges uh, and calling back to Deleuze, um, Deleuze's reading of Borges, where there's this moment where uh, Borges talks about the labyrinth of a straight, the labyrinth of time as a straight line. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, like when one thinks of a labyrinth, uh, typically one doesn't think of that, you know, like one thinks of, okay, well, a, a labyrinth is many lines going in many different directions, uh, so, some circling back on one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a straight line, um, where Deleuze goes with it, um, and I think Borges does too, uh, is that that uh, line is uh, an infinite line forming a circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, By the way, yeah. one last... Um, one last Lovecraftian reference since you're talking about that. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen True Detective. I have a True Detective. Yes. The first season I thought was brilliant. Yeah. Um, the other ones, not so much. Uh, In the first season, there is reference to a book called The King in Yellow. Yes. Which, which references another fictional book. Uh, which many people think exists, but doesn't. It's again, one of these sort of um, apocryphal things that people think is centered the lexicon and something real. Um, And you'll recall that the Matthew McConaughey um, character uh, often says that time is a flat circle. So I thought I would just, you know, tie that all together with another reference right great and thus the circle turns on itself again excellent david thanks uh yeah that's so cool i could go on for hours about this stuff i love it well yeah this is this is why people should study philosophy you get to read yeah you know like you get to it's like you get to uh, take the weird things and just run with them and see where they go. <laughs> uh, that's, my, yeah. that's my whole modus operandi, man. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's do uh, best moment, worst moment. Uh, what worked? Something that really worked for you? Something that didn't work for you? And uh, yeah. So uh, what worked for you? What was the best scene of this or sequence of this movie for you, David? For me, the, the best sequence was his um, attempted escape where he finally succeeds that and he's being chased by all the monsters, that wall of monsters. By the way, that was a practical effect shot that took a long time and a lot of money to, for them to try to to do. Surprisingly, it's just a few seconds really in the film. Um, but that, that long corridor that he's running down to try to escape the wall of monsters, I thought was it was it was pretty good for the time they they mixed practical and 
um, ILM effects, actually, um, industrial light and magic. Um, and they did it, I thought pretty effectively. So that was, that was, that was well done. That was fun. And it, uh, conveyed for me the sense of, of doom and, and, you know, real, real danger. Worst, I would say, um, I found the, the set where Sutter Kane was working to be, um, not very believable that pulsating wall um, was not a, it was a practical effect that didn't work for me. Um, and I found it cheesy. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I thought it was, as I said, pretty succinct as a movie. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, for me, it's hard to go with like the best shot because there were a lot of really standout shots in this movie. Um, so I'm going to, Take a bit of license and say too. Uh, for me, it was the the poster scene uh, where Sam Neill finally pulls down the poster of uh, the book and sees that himself looking uh, at he's looking at himself in the poster. I thought that was a brilliant payoff. I thought that was really really good, uh, and uh, all the Steppenwolf vibes from that. So I love that, and then. Uh, the second uh, scene was, or the my second favorite uh, shot was <laughs> this, the axe-wielding agent crossing the street. I just was, okay, yeah. I thought that was so good. I thought that was hilarious. Um, the worst scene, uh, I don't know if I got one. Um, okay, well, um, I thought the... The tentacles under the doorway uh, could, yeah. have been, could have been better done. Uh, but tentacles are tough with practical yeah. effects. They never look really good. Yeah, like that could have been, uh, they were just uh, too whip-like. Uh, yeah. for me. But uh, that was the really small thing. I do agree with you that the pulsating wall of uh, Sutter Kane's off, uh, office in the church should have been... Uh, it wasn't working for me. Uh, I it was saw a very yeah. obvious, uh, transparent, um, practical effect that just didn't work. They could have. Yeah. yeah and I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure John Carpenter wasn't happy with it either. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. But, uh, this was a good, very, very good movie. Uh, yeah. So I'm so glad you picked it. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm happy to watch it again. And yeah, I'm always up for a John Carpenter flicks. All right. Uh, so I get the next one, right? That's it's up to you, man. Okay, there were so many uh, that uh, came about. Um, Stalker. I picked Andre Tarkovsky's movie Stalker. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, the connection is the connections are tangential. That's <laughs> fine. Yeah, uh, but basically, uh, like Hobbs End is a place where that does not really exist and that you certainly shouldn't go to. That's in the entirety of the zone in soccer. Uh, yeah, yeah, so and both involve both movies involve a writer. Uh, so there, there was the, the very no, you, you got it. That's a that's a winner. And I'm looking forward to watching it again. All right. Okay, great, David. Uh, thanks so much. This was a great conversation.